My name is Pip Hare and I am the eighth woman in the world to ever finish the Vendée Globe race, which is a single-handed, non-stop, round-the-world sailing race. The Vendée Globe race is kind of like any of the major sporting events. It happens every four years and it is the toughest solo ocean race on the planet. It is one of the few sporting events where men and women compete on equal terms. And that's because the boats are so big and so powerful that your physical ability takes a backseat to your mental strategy and problem solving. I first read about the Vendée Globe race when I was 17 years old and I finally got to cross the start line when I was 46. It was the best three months of my life without a doubt. Um, I pushed myself in a way I didn't know was possible. Um, I stepped up to every challenge in a version of myself that I was super proud of because I was resourceful, I was brave, I was resilient, I never stopped believing I could do better. But also just having the permission to only be a sailor for three months of my life was just extraordinary and I loved every minute of it. So I guess the first thing to know is that even though the boat is 60 foot long, there's nothing inside it. Um, this is an out-and-out out race machine. So it's built of carbon. Um, some places it's solid carbon, some places it's carbon um, with a uh, either a foam or an aluminium sandwich in between. Um, so there's no furniture, no beds, no seats, no doors, no rooms. Um, so you kind of just live in on the inside of a bare hull. Um, over a 24-hour period, there is so much to do. There's too much to do. No one is allowed to help me with tactics or navigation. So I need to download weather forecasts, satellite images via satellites, um, and then use computer software to, um, to find the best route around weather systems, to stay in the wind but out of danger, to try and outspot my competitors. So there's a constant wear and tear on your body the noise is incredible. The boat howls and hums and you can feel every single wave that slaps the hull. You can hear the sound of the water. It's very, very loud. And because the boat's going so fast, I can't sleep for long periods of time. Um, so my average sleep would be about 30 minutes at a time and that would be on a beanbag on the floor. But Sometimes it's just not like that. Sometimes the boat needs my attention. Um, I need to keep making changes. I need to keep looking out for other competitors or, or something breaks and I have to fix it. And in those cases, I might go for kind of 24 hours without sleeping. And then of course I need to eat. So I eat freeze dried food, which is all pre-packed for me before the race. I need to drink. I don't do a lot of washing and the toilet is a bucket. <laughs> it's an interesting race because well, actually any endurance sport event transitions 
this this balance between physical ability and a mental strength and I think the Vendée Globe is the epitome of that because it goes on for three months from the minute you cross that start line your boat and actually to a certain extent your body is falling apart it's almost like you stand up you get knocked down you stand up you get knocked down I had to climb the mast twice during the race um, and so that is absolutely terrifying. I don't think that any of my competitors uh, would put their hands up and say they like climbing the mast. And if I just kind of frame it for those that, that might not be able to imagine, it's the mast is 30 metres high and you have to climb it while the boat is still sailing. At the times I did it, I was over a thousand miles offshore. And when you climb the mast, you are just on a piece of rope. You are you have a, a you hoist a piece of rope to the top of the mast, which is a proper climbing rope. You wear a climbing device, which is similar to what tree surgeons use, so that you can self belay, which most importantly is about letting yourself down again. Um, and you just have to climb. And and the worry is, I mean, there is a lot of worries. So one is that the autopilot might fail and the boat might career off in another direction, you know, sails crashing around all over the place and you'd be at the top of the mast and you couldn't do anything about it. The weather might change, the boat suddenly might be overpowered and heel right over and again, you wouldn't be able to do anything. Obviously there's massive fear of falling. So we're here based in Poole, um, same place as the RNLI HQ, and I've created an ocean racing team here, which I'm quite proud of. Yeah, the, the 79 Vastnet, I think, actually changed offshore sailing everywhere because there was such an unnecessary loss of life, not just from the sailors, but also, sadly, from rescuers as well. And after that, there was a big review around what safety on these races should look like. And... A number of things have happened and still evolved since then. So only boats with a certain um, uh, writing moment, um, only boats of a certain length with watertight bulkheads are allowed to enter offshore races. They specify the safety equipment that must be on board, the kind of life jackets that all competitors must be wearing, we started to take a lot more consideration for, for forecasting and weather forecasts. I mean, the problem in 79 was that you know, weather forecasting was not so great. They were too far offshore to hear the Coast Guard or to pick up any radio. I was lucky enough to be on the team that originally set up the Swim Safe programme working with Swim England. Um, so Swim Safe was a programme kind of designed to address the fact that many young families that come down to the coast for kind of the day or, or a holiday, they're bringing children and young people into a new environment and even if those uh, young people are able to swim, going into the sea is a completely different experience. 
and they're not always going to lifeguarded beaches. And so we set up a programme where in coastal locations, swimming teachers were delivering one hour free sessions to young people to give them the skills to survive in open water. So it's things like teaching them about temperature, teaching them how to call for help, who to call for help, and of course the float to live message as well. You know, within two years we already had case studies of young people who had said they'd used those skills to stay alive in difficult circumstances. And when I look at how the scheme developed, I'm super proud to have been a part of it. I would never go to sea in a boat that I didn't trust. You know, I have to go out and face, you know, huge conditions. And it is frightening, you know, to be a human being in amongst all of that aggressive power of nature is absolutely terrifying because you know that those elements outside, you could not survive in them at all um but the minute you step into a boat that you have confidence in you you're kind of you're giving that fear permission to to turn off you're able to focus on the job in hand because you don't have to think about whether the boat is suitable but you know the other thing for me is that, and I, you know, I think that there is a synergy there as well with lifeboat crews, but for me, I also have to trust that my team have prepared the boat to the best level possible and maintained it to the best level possible. That when I press a button, something will happen. That when I look into one of my spare bags, the tools I need to fix something will be there. Um, and so, although I'm solo sailing, I am working as part of a team and I have to trust that my team also have the same end goal as I do. And I think, you know, whether you, your team is on the shore or in the boat, it's that collective drive towards the common goal. And, you know, in for the RNLI volunteer crews, that's, that's saving lives. You know, they have a collective goal. They're all working towards it. Every single thing that has been done around them the building the boat, the maintaining the boat, the training that goes on, the maintenance of the engines, the skills of everybody on board. That's all to a collective purpose of saving lives. In the world of ocean racing has, you know, for all of eternity been massively male dominated and we as a team are different. There are six female skippers in the next Vendée and I think it's really important that we are on that stage demonstrating what we can do as athletes on equal terms and normalising having female elite ocean racing sailors so that women in the future feel they belong in the sport. Other than my three-year stint at the RNLI, I've been a professional sailor my whole life. And 
in the early 90s, there, there just were no female role models for me. And when I turned up down on the Solent on the south coast of the UK, I would regularly turn up to kind of mass briefings for skippers and I would be the only woman there. I didn't go to a sailing club when I was a kid. I, you know, I didn't have any of that background. So I was quite an outsider from the beginning. Um, and I did find it really hard to find a place where I belonged. And maybe that's why solo sailing appealed so much because I, I only needed to belong to the ocean. I didn't need to belong to any other tribe. Um, but things are really changing and I'm, I'm happy to see it changing. The incredible thing about sailing bigger boats where a crew is required is that there is a massively diverse range of skills and abilities required to make a boat go fast. And it's not just about either being heavy or being strong. You don't always have to go to someone who looks the same to find those skills. I'm the only female CEO of an ocean race team in the UK. I also have a female operations director. I'm a female skipper. It's not just about women and it's not just about young women. It's about a diversity of age, a diversity of ethnicity, a diversity of backgrounds. You know, sailing is a sport that can provide so much to so many people and there are so many different disciplines of sailing. And I would just love more people to feel like it's a sport where they could belong. The ocean is a place where everyone belongs. The RNLI crews need that diversity of talent and skill. And you might walk up to your local lifeboat station and see kind of a wall of male crew. But you don't have to be like them to be valuable. You don't have to look like them to be valuable. You know, believe in the skills that you have and the attributes you have. Believe in what you can offer because you really do belong. And ultimately, I know the sea doesn't care. The sea does not care what you look like. In a way, I kind of feel, oh, is it only 200 years? because the RNLI has always been there. Everyone in some way has seen one of those orange boats. You know, we, we take it so for granted and there is just this incredible confidence and trust that when we go out on the water, there are going to be skilled people who will be there if we need them. It's an organisation that has grown with time and adapted to the times that we're in, in an incredible way. And I guess I just kind of want to say happy anniversary and thank you to all of the incredible volunteer crews. Just thank you for being there. Hello there, it's Phil Coulter here. You've been listening to part of the RNLI's 200 Voices collection. And to hear more remarkable stories, head to rnli.org forward slash 200 Voices or subscribe to the RNLI wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. 
200 Voices is produced for the RNLI by Adventurous Audio Limited.